Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning, if you didn't gather from that reading. So um, if you would, please navigate there in your Bibles. And uh, I'm going to pause for another word of prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we seek your face now. Seek your face continually, Lord, but uh, especially now as we open your word together. And uh, Lord, have it preached. Lord, we ask that you would add power to your word, Lord. We know that your word is powerful, that's living and active, and it's able to even pierce to the level of our hearts, Lord, and, and dividing even between our thoughts and our intents and our motives, Lord. We just pray that you would speak to us, Father, that you would, uh, Lord, expose our sinfulness, that you would humble us, that you would, Lord, exhort us, that you would encourage us, Lord, and that you would build us up. We pray that you would do this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've probably heard the saying before that it's good to stop and smell the roses, right? Uh, I was thinking about that, that saying as I was studying this passage this week because it's really kind of what Paul does here in this passage. He sort of slows down and he, he kind of stops to smell the roses of our salvation, so to speak. Speaking of roses, I, I came across an illustration this week that um, Paul David Tripp shared a, as a personal illustration in a book he wrote called Dangerous Calling. And I want to just read that for you here at the beginning as a, a bit of an introduction to what we're going to talk about. He writes, I have a friend who became an avid rose gardener. His rose garden was the community's most beautiful and healthy with the widest variety of roses. He did everything humanly possible to prune, protect, and nourish his bushes into maximum health and productivity. During the season, he would work many hours every day on the bushes. He told himself he did it because he loved roses. He didn't mind the early mornings or the gardening that repeatedly took him into the night. His wife thought he was a little nuts, and his friends wondered what it was about roses that hooked this guy. But nothing seemed to weaken his resolve. He knew all the URLs of all the most important rosebush sites. He was friends with all the good nursery proprietors in his area, and he had filled his head with endless trivia about the history, health, and care of roses. Imagine this. He was, he was able to speak in a rose lingo that needed translation if the listener was not, a, was not himself a roser. Well, one Friday evening after three hours of rose work, he was looking out the window as he washed his hands at the kitchen sink and it struck him all of a sudden that the one thing he hadn't done in years with his roses was enjoy them. He had become an expert, but he had not been moved or changed by the display of beauty. That was the object of all his efforts. 
expert but unchanged, expert but without awe, expert but lacking in joy, expert but not very thankful. It was a sad state of affairs for a man who professed to love roses. Paul Tripp goes on in this story to describe how his friend spent the next morning just sitting, watching, listening, and enjoying his rose bushes. He said that those three hours there beholding his rose bushes changed him, helping him not only to regain his passion for his roses, but also sweeping him, him up in worship of the one who created those roses. You know, as, as believers in Christ, we are constantly in danger of becoming experts who are unchanged. We're constantly in danger of becoming experts without awe of God. We gain an expertise in in biblical knowledge or in, in even theological lingo, but perhaps we lack joy. We become experts, but we never stop to give thanks for what we've learned. And so I'm glad here, as we've been plowing through some pretty heavy material here in the book of Romans, that Paul stops to smell the roses. And as we step through this passage with, with him this morning, I hope that, that you can step back as well from, from the, the beauty of, of the gospel that we're talking about and just exult in it with him. We're gonna, you're going to notice here a shift in tone from, from the way Paul's been talking. He shifts from sort of a tone of argumentation to that of exaltation and praise. Paul says here in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that therefore signals a transition in not only the tone, but also in topic. This actually marks a major transition in the letter here that Paul is writing to the Romans. He's transitioning from talking about the way of justification, which is by faith alone, and even further back, the need for justification. And now he's transitioning to the benefits of that justification. Another way to to say this is that he's transitioning really from talking about our justification to our sanctification. So justification being that we are declared righteous before God. How an ungodly sinner can be declared righteous before a holy God. And sanctification being talking about how God takes us justified sinners and progressively sets us apart and conforms us into the image of his son. This really begins a a new major subsection of the letter of Romans and it's comprised of of Romans chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8. And if I could summarize 
sort of with one word what, what these chapters are all about, I would choose the word hope. Paul is connecting our, our, the reality that we are justified by faith with a future hope that we have in Christ and connecting it to the here and now. A commentator by the name of, of Thomas Schreiner, he put it this way, he said, chapters one through four of Romans emphasize that God has fulfilled his saving promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who put their faith in him are in the right before God. That's chapters one through four. We are put in the right with God. But now, in chapters five through eight, Paul ties together righteousness by faith with future hope. What a timely theme for us to be focusing upon. I mean, I'm just so thrilled that we're here in in this section of Scripture at this time, having plowed through some of the bad news that that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and having laid a firm foundation that we are justified not by works but by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now able to exult in our standing before the Lord and in the sure hope we have of heaven and and the glory of God. And and I'm just thrilled that we're going to be able to spend this time in this section of Scripture. I think it's going to really be an encouragement to you. I mean, we all could use more hope right now. And we as Christians, above all, have, have so much reason to be filled with hope because of our Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 5 through 8, it begins with hope here in, in verses 1 through 11. And then really, I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but Romans 5, 1 through 11 especially, sort of parallels really nicely with Romans chapter 8. If you were to sort of compare those chapters side by side, you would notice a lot of similarities. It, it really bookends this section of Scripture with hope. And in between the hope, we have a description of what is the Christian life. In other words, this section of Romans is is really going to meet most of you right where you're at in your walk with God. It's going to meet you where you you are as you strive day in and day out to follow Christ. And so, as wonderful as justification by faith alone is, and we've spent the past month or so talking about it, and it truly is the foundation of our salvation, Everything else we're going to talk about isn't going to make sense unless you have that firm foundation of understanding how you're made right before God. As wonderful as justification by faith is, my friends, it is just the beginning. It is just the beginning of the gospel. Paul exalts here in at least four major benefits of justification. And we're really only going to make it through about two and a half of them this morning. And then you're going to have to come back next week and uh, hear the, the, the other two and a half or so uh, points. So first, the first thing that Paul exalts in here is, he says in verse 1 that we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Where once there was only hostility and wrath between us and God, as a result of our justification, we have peace with God. 
There is peace between you and the God who made you. It's hard to understate just how, how monumental this is in your life, that you be at peace with God, that he be for you and not against you. When we speak about peace, biblically, we're talking about being at peace with God. We're not talking about peace in the way we often talk about world peace, right? When we think about peace in the world, we, we often define peace as merely the absence of conflict, right? If two, there are two warring nations and we say that they are now at peace, it means that they've laid down their arms and they're no longer trying to kill each other. But when we talk about being at peace with God, we're not just talking about an absence of conflict with him. We are talking about complete reconciliation with him. There's a wholeness there. There's a well-being. There's a restored relationship. And that's why later in this passage, Paul actually will use that word reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God. And notice that this isn't talking about here the peace of God. It says peace with God. The peace of God would be that calm, peaceful feeling that you get. It's a subjective thing. It's a feeling. And make no mistake, as Christians, we do know the calm peace of God, especially through prayer. I mean, I I think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's where Paul's talking about that calm, serene, peaceful feeling that you get when you know that God is guarding your heart, whatever anxiety is on your heart, you've, you've handed it over to him, you've cast your burdens at his feet, and you are filled with the peace of God because you know that God is in control and that he, he can handle whatever anxious thoughts are on your heart. That's not what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 5. We're talking about having peace with God. But make no mistake, the peace of God flows out of being at peace with God, right? I mean, really, Paul, what Paul's getting at here in Romans chapter 5 is in many ways the deeper benefit of justification. Because guess what? Sometimes we are not going to feel the peace of God. Our feelings are all over the map. They're up and down. Sometimes we feel anxious and we have to fight for the, the peace of God through prayer. We have to fight for it. A Christian, if you are justified by faith before God, peace with God is an objective reality. It is a truth that you can cling on to no matter how you feel. Right? You can remind yourself, you know what? I'm in turmoil right now. But I know that through Jesus Christ, I am at peace with God. Many times I myself turn to Romans chapter 8 where Paul says in, in verse Uh, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Knowing that God is for you, even when 
when everything around you is falling to pieces. That is a benefit of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you have been justified by faith, you have been declared righteous before him, and no matter what comes into your life, you know that you have peace with God. And out of that assurance flows a, the peace of God, that calm assurance that you desire so much. You know, everybody wants peace of mind. Everybody does. Some people drink herbal tea, Drink some sleepy time tea, right? Listen to mellow jazz music or something to chill out. Some people watch TV to feel peaceful. Some people drink to feel peaceful. Go on vacation, you can exercise, you can do yoga, you can stretch. Our country even markets peace. It's marketable. I don't know if you've seen, uh, seen that, uh, that motivational saying, keep calm and carry on. Have you seen that? Um, I learned, actually, in preparation for the sermon, I looked it up online, and I, I found out that that's actually a motivational poster first produced by the British government in the build-up to World War II. They were trying to assure the people, remind them, hey, just keep calm and carry on. Right? Everybody was feeling anxious and they were reminding them to keep calm. Well, recently that, that slogan has been taken up and you can actually go to keepcalmandcarryon.com or something like that and you can fill in, there's keep calm and, and then you can fill in whatever it is that makes you feel calm. Right? If it's fishing, if it's weightlifting, playing music or whatever, you can fill it in. You can print yourself up a t-shirt that says keep calm and go fishing. Right? Or keep calm and whatever, fill in the blank. And let me tell you, even though everybody is out there desiring peace, we as, as Christians, we have something deeper than, than merely a peaceful, easy feeling. We have peace with God. And we can exult in that today. We can rejoice in it. We can... We can really lay our, our anchor into it and, um, and really trust in the Lord through, through turbulent times. We don't just seek peace through whatever floats our boat, right? We find peace with God through Jesus, and then in that relationship, we find through prayer the peace of God. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, it surpasses all understanding. I know that many of you could testify to that this morning. So first, Paul exalts in the fact that we have peace with God, but secondly here, he, he goes on in verse 2 to speak of the fact that we have access to grace. Access to grace, verse 2. Grace. I want to assume that everybody knows what grace is. Is simply stated, grace is unmerited favor. It means you don't deserve it. Favor from God that you do not deserve. I'm always looking for a fresh expression of grace, right? Like how to, how to explain it to people. And I, I came across this expression of it uh, in a commentary by Kent Hughes this week. He said this, 
He said, grace is God's riches to us. Grace is the unsought, undeserved, and unconditional love of God. Grace is God pursuing us until he has found us and persevering with us ever afterwards. We have access to grace, unmerited favor. Let's talk about what this this word here, access, means. We have access. Two biblical images come to mind when we think about having access to God. The first one I think of as having access into the Holy of Holies in the temple. You know, in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were, there were various walls that were designed to limit access to the next level of holiness within the temple. And the holiest place in the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. And there was a, a, an altar there, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was back behind a veil. And only certain people could go there at certain times of the year and in a certain way. It was restricted access. But when Jesus died on the cross and his body was, was torn for us, was broken for us, the curtain of his body, at the same time when Jesus died, God sent an earthquake and tore that veil in the temple in two showing us that through Jesus Christ, we now have access into the Holy of Holies to fellowship with God himself. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have access through Jesus' blood into the holiest of places, to the very presence of God. Secondly, I I thought of access to the heavenly throne room. You think of of, of a king, even an earthly king in, in his throne room. Not just anybody can come in, right? You need special access. But through Christ, we have access. Hebrews, again, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Tim Keller once said that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child of the king. We have that kind of access. As children of God, we've been adopted. We have access to God as if he were our father because he is. We have access to grace, and Paul says that it is in this grace that we stand. I want to emphasize two things about standing in grace. First of all, our ongoing position in the realm of grace. Our ongoing position in the realm of grace. We don't just access God's grace once briefly and then move on. Right? Paul says we stand in it. We stand in the realm of grace now. Maybe beforehand we were in the realm of the law where it it was based upon our performance. You do well, you're rewarded, and you don't do well, and you were punished. 
we now stand in the realm of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we, we take up our residence now. My son played basketball this, this past year before the shutdown. And it was really the first time that he had done this on an organized team. And as I kind of was watching his games and was even myself, I'm not a big basketball player, um, sort of reviewed some of the rules. I, I was reminded of, of one rule in particular called the three-second rule. And the three-second rule in basketball is this, that you, you, know, you have the hoop, and when you're playing defense, there's a painted area in front of the hoop, and you are not allowed to stand in that painted area for longer than three seconds. Otherwise, it's sort of like goaltending, right? So you can't, uh, the way this translates is you can't take your biggest kid and just say, hey, buddy, you stand right here and anyone comes along, you just swat them, right? You can't do that because of the three-second rule. You have to keep moving. So I, I thought of that because when, when Paul speaks of, uh, of the fact that we stand in grace, it's sort of the opposite of that rule. We don't, it's not that we just pass through the area, no, we, we stand in it. And we have continual access to the grace of God, his unmerited favor. I have this image of somebody going and standing under a waterfall and the water just continually crashing down over them. Right? We are lavished with God's grace continually. So not only is that the position in which we continually are standing, but I also just wanted to emphasize here that I think Paul is also uh, exulting in the fact that we will, on the last day, make our final stand in the position of grace. When we stand before the judgment throne of God someday, we will stand and not fall before him because of his grace. We are saved by grace and we continue to stand in grace, and we will stand before him one day in grace. His grace lifts us up and causes us to stand. Thirdly, and finally for this morning, we exult in our hope. We exult in our hope. Look at, at, at the second half of verse 2 here where Paul um, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This word here, rejoice, I use the English Standard Version. That's the, the way this word is translated here. But if you were to sort of scan the different English translations of this word, rejoice, you would get some different translations of this word. And I, I think by scanning those different translations, you get a better feel of what this word means. It's sort of the flavor of this word. So it does have this idea of rejoicing as the ESV and the King James and the New King James indicates. But the NIV translates it boasting. Right? It's, it's not wrong to boast in something like boasting in the Lord. Right, so there's a good kind of boasting, and that, that, that's sort of a, a part of this word. It's not just rejoicing, but it's boasting. And I actually prefer the, the New American Standard uh, Version's translation of this word. They use the word exult. 
I think exalt is a, a really good use for this word because it really captures a mixture between boasting and rejoicing. We're exalting. Kent Hughes said that the, the word here, rejoice, means to boast in the sense of jubilation. Exultant rejoicing, to shout about it. I always marvel that, you know, um, we, we often sit so calmly in church and maybe don't let our emotions show, but then take, that, take some people out to a sporting event and they will exult in their sports team with loud shouts, Right? We have something to shout about. We have something to get excited about, to rejoice in, to boast in. We stir ourselves up for that. And what does Paul exult in? What does he boast in? He, he boasts in the hope we have as Christians in the glory of God. We, we see here, actually through this passage, Paul's going to use this word to rejoice or boast or exult. Three times. He's gonna, he uses it here in, at the end of verse 2 when, when he says he rejoices or exalts in the hope of the glory of God and then he uses it again in the very next verse. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So we see there, a, a, first Paul speaks of a future hope, a future exaltation in, in, in the hope that we have in, in the future. The, the future glory of God. And then he also speaks of a, a hope for the present as he exalts in our sufferings. And then if you skip down all the way to verse 11, we're not going to get to this this morning, but in verse 11 he actually speaks of also rejoicing in God himself. He boasts or rejoices or exalts in God himself. Paul begins here, though, with this hope for the future, the hope of the glory of God. Now, as I said last week, Christian hope is more than just wishful thinking. Right? It's more than wishful thinking, like, wow, I hope I don't gain 10 pounds, but meanwhile you're just sitting there eating junk food and sitting on the couch all the time, right? Wishful thinking. Christian hope is not that. Christian hope is a confident assurance. It is grounded in the fact that God has already sent his son to die on the cross for us in history. The Christian religion is historical. right? We point back to a time in history where God entered the world through his son Jesus Christ and laid down his life on the cross and, and poured out his blood for us in love. Right? We have a, a confident assurance. We have a hope that is grounded in the historical reality of what Jesus has already done for us. It's not wishful thinking. The historical reality of Jesus Christ is one of the, the best attested historical truths that you can have. So many more manuscripts, authentic early manuscripts attesting to the reality and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to mention the effect that his ministry has had on his followers within the first generation. We have a, a real hope grounded in the historical reality of Jesus Christ, but it is also a future hope. Now Paul, as I said, he, he's 
if he were thinking chronologically here, he would maybe start with talking about hope in our sufferings, but he doesn't. He, he almost can't help himself. He goes straight to the greater hope, the ultimate hope that we have in, in the future glory when Christ shall return or when we shall go to be with him. And it is that hope, that, that ultimate hope of going to be with the Lord forever and ever, eternal life, that is the hope that undergirds all of our hope. Think about it. We, you and I, who Paul said in, in Romans chapter 1, we exchange the glory of God for created things, the image of created things. You and I who fell short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, we are now exulting in the hope of the glory of God. It's a miracle. And we, we exult in the glory of God as those who have been changed. What does it look like to exult in the hope of the glory of God? What does that look like for us practically? Tony Morita gives this illustration. He says, in 1996, LSU won the, the Collegiate World Series in baseball. One of the players decided to get a bottle full of the dirt at home plate. And then the next season, he took that bottle with him to every single game. And when times got tough, he'd whip out that bottle and screw off the cap and say, guys, get a whiff of Rosenblatt Stadium. That's the kind of hope that we need to rekindle in our hearts every day. We need to catch a whiff of the glory of heaven The hope of the glory of God, it puts our present suffering into perspective, doesn't it? Puts it into perspective. Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 17, Paul says it this way. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. I heard uh, D.A. Carson said once, I'm not... I'm not suffering from anything that a good re resurrection can't fix. That's the, that's the perspective that we can have as Christians. And that, that's what Paul's talking about here when he says that he exalts in the hope of the glory of God. And I think it's good for us to think about what will glory be like? Think about it. Scriptures say that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, Neither has it entered into man's imagination what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. My friends, the best is yet to come. Pick up the heavenly brochures 
found in passages like Revelation 21 and 22 and set your heart on it. The way uh, so many people, they, when they're planning a vacation, they begin to, to look, pour over the brochures and the travel websites and they set their heart on their, their vacation, right? We as Christians, we are to set our hearts on our heavenly destination. What will glory be like? Think about it. Put all your hope in it. Paul is, is doing that. He's hoping in the, the future hope of the glory of God, but we see in the very next two verses here that he's also hoping in the present, even in the midst of suffering. You know, it's expected that we might look forward to heaven. That makes sense, right? Sort of grit our teeth and get through the tough stuff till we get to the really good stuff, Right? Almost like, like kids holding their nose to get through the peas and carrots to get onto the ice cream at dessert, right? We all, that, that makes sense to us. But what Paul is saying to us here and, and now in verses 3 through 4 is saying, no, enjoy, you can rejoice in the peas and carrots, right? You can rejoice in the sufferings. This term sufferings here, let's define it so you can't wiggle out from under here. The, the, the term sufferings here, it, it certainly first refers to persecution that we might experience for our faith. But it also includes really any trials, any difficulties experienced as a result of living in a fallen world. The New Testament is just full of, of warnings that Christians as Christians, we are, are to expect suffering, right? The, the world hated Jesus, and Jesus warned us, as a result, the world will hate us. In fact, Jesus described uh, following him as taking up your cross and following him. It's not an easy path. Jesus never said it would be. But rather, it's a path that invites extra sufferings on top of the normal trials of life. But unexpectedly here, we, we find that we can and, and we should exult in those sufferings. Paul is not somehow suggesting that, that we should take some sort of sick delight in, in the, the, the suffering itself. That's not what he's saying here. No, the exaltation comes from the hope of what God is surely accomplishing through the suffering. You know, as Christians, our our afflictions are are never meaningless or arbitrary, but God is working in the affliction to bring us to full maturity in Christ. Suffering truly is the schoolhouse in which God does his most poignant instruction. You know, there are certain passages of Scripture that never became meaningful or never had a meaning in my life until I suffered, right? But it is often through the suffering that that the Lord brings those things to life for us and takes us deeper into sanctification and into Christ-likeness. And that's what Paul says here. He says that suffering produces endurance, What is endurance? Endurance is perseverance, right? The ability to keep going even under great pressure. As a a runner, when I think of enduring or persevering, 
I think of the insanity that it is for me to go out in the July humidity and run up that hill that I run up when I go running. Why do I do that? Why do I, why do I endure up that hill week in and week out, day in and day out? It's not because I take some sort of sick pleasure in feeling my lungs burn within me. No, I do it because I know that running up that hill is going to develop in me an endurance. It's going to make me stronger. And God is busy doing the same things through our sufferings. The only way to develop endurance, my friends, is to endure. Right? There, there's no other way to learn perseverance than to go through a difficult time and to walk with the Lord through it and to actually develop perseverance. There's no, other, there's no shortcut to it. No one can do it for you. You say, oh, I'm, I'm walking through the valley right now. I'm walking through difficulty and suffering. Why is God allowing this in my life? There's no other way to learn it, my friend, than, other, than just to walk through it. There's no way to learn perseverance than to persevere. But Paul says that there is a hope to be found in the midst of your suffering. And it is to be found in the fact that God is doing something. He's developing perseverance in you. And through that perseverance, Paul says he is producing character. And what is character? Character, this, this word here has the sense of, of character that has been tested commentator says here that the word derives from a group of words that have to do with the refining of metals, dross being burned away. Paul is speaking of sterling character, character without impurities. Enduring through suffering with the Lord has a way of shaping your character, and the result is that character then produces hope in us. This chain of suffering leading to endurance and endurance leading to character and character resulting in hope, it reminds me of the parable of the soils that the Lord taught in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 13, when he spoke of, of someone going out and sowing seed on, on various types of soil. And one of the types of soil was, was the rocky ground, right? And and the Lord said that there's going to be some people who are like the rocky ground that receive the word of God and sprout up quickly. But because of the rocky soil, the root is not able to dive down deep into the life-giving uh, depths where the water is able to nourish the plant. And so when the sun, the, the heat of the day comes out, the plant will wither and fa- quickly fade away. So the reason that, that this chain of suffering that leads to endurance, that leads to character, that leads to hope, reminds me of that is because, you know what, if, if you can look back in your life and see that God has brought you through suffering and developed in you a, a perseverance that perseveres that heat of the day, right, and you can sense your roots driving down deep into the hope of the gospel, and you can see that he is developing in you a godly character. And then suddenly you have a rising up in you this hope that, man, this is not of me, but God has his hands on me and he is doing a work in me that he will bring to completion. There is a hope there that cannot be squelched. 
And Paul finishes here, he says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out already into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that is where we're going to pick up this passage next week. But in closing, let me just close with a, a bit of an invitation. My friends, you will not know the peace of God until you know the, what it means to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Are you at peace with Him? You will not know what it is like to stand in the constant waterfall of God's grace until you have laid down your own best efforts and instead received as a gift of grace salvation through Jesus Christ alone. You will not know the the real and abiding hope, the confident assurance of eternal life until you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we've talked about this morning is only available through the Lord, through repentance of your sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from the invitation to you this morning to be justified, to stand rightly before him. And if you will take the Lord up on that invitation to trust in him, you can join with us, join with Paul in exulting in these wonderful benefits of salvation. And let me tell you, being saved, being justified before him is only the beginning. For those of you who have already done that this morning, let me just ask you this question in closing. When is the last time you exulted in the benefits of your salvation? When is the last time that you let out a shout of joy over these things? When is the last time that you stopped and smelled the roses? Maybe like the expert gardener at the beginning that we were talking about at the beginning, you need to just step back, turn off the TV, shut off your phone, get alone with him and just exult. Just exult in the hope that he has given you. Psalm 103 verse 2 that we began our service with this morning says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits.